Well, get your Bibles open, if you would, to Acts chapter 26. And I really want to uh, talk about something the Lord put on my heart, kind of following up with this play. And before I do, it's going to get a little heavy. So before I get heavy, I'm going to go light. All right? I'll get you, get you nice and loose before we go. It's not bad. It's just heavy. Amen. You know, I love to read the minds of kids. So I found some good stuff today. All right? So they were asking these kids, how do you decide who you marry? And Alan was age 10, said, you've got to find somebody who likes the same stuff. Like if you like sports, she should like it that you like sports. And she should keep the chips and dip coming. And then Chris, Kirsten says, no person really decides before they grow up who they're going to marry. God decides it all way before. And then you just get to find out later who you're stuck with. <laughs> what is the right age to get married? Camille at age 10 says, 23 is the best age because you know the person forever by then. <laughs> Freddie says, no age is good to get married at. you got to be a fool to get married. <laughs> How can a stranger tell if two people are married? Derek, age 8, says, you might have to guess based on whether they seem to be yelling at the same kids. <laughs> they ask some kids, what, what do most people do on a date? Lynette, age 8, says, Dates are for having fun, and people should use them to get to know each other. Even boys have something to say if you listen long enough. <laughs> Martin, age 10, says, On the first date, they just tell each other lies. That usually gets them interested enough to go for a second date. Kids are smarter than we give them credit, aren't they? Is it better to be single or to be married? Anita, age 9, says, It's better for... Girls to be single, but not boys. Boys need someone to clean up after them. <laughs> How would you make a marriage work? Ricky, age 10, says, Tell your wife that she looks pretty, even if she looks like a truck. <laughs> These are just kids writing, amen? And finally, what do you think your mom and dad have in common? Lori, age 8, says, They both don't want any more kids. <laughs> Amen. Now I'm going to kind of lead into the message. I want to talk, before I read this, I want to talk tonight about not making excuses. Amen. Let's not make excuses. I was thinking about the play and, and not only getting people here, as we did, God did, a good job of. But obviously we know that we passed out 10,000 flyers. We blasted that thing for weeks. We had it on our marquee and on and so forth. We could have had 5,000 that could have came. I don't know how many. We know we invited at least 10,000 people. But a lot more, even though we're thankful for who came, a lot more could have came. How many can understand that? So those that did not come, most likely, not, not all, but most likely a good majority of those people did not come because they made excuses. And, 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 and some of them might have been legitimate, even in their own eyes, but 
Excuses is a humongous reason why we don't make it for God many times. Now I want to talk to two types of people tonight. I want to talk to you that are here, that's plugged in, that's committed, that's faithful. And obviously you might say, well, it's Wednesday night and we're here and that's great. But if you're going to finish the race and go all the way to the end and make it to heaven, you're going to have to continue to not make excuses serving God. And if you're new here and you just started coming or you're just trying to serve the Lord, you need to know from right now that the only way you're going to make it is if you do not learn how to make excuses for serving God. Okay? Now there's a lot in there. Excuses to pray. Excuses to read the Bible. I'm, not, I'm, I'm going general with this. And just, and just how we are so humanly able and really good at making excuses. Would anybody just be honest with me tonight and say we're all good at making excuses for everything that's just it's just you know i was joking around sunday night with how kids at the young age they don't have to be taught to steal to lie to push to cheat to they're just born that way we're born into sin and we don't really have to learn how to make excuses we we really are really really good at it and so i want to talk about that because we know more could have came and we know many came and maybe were touched and got a glimpse of their future. But because of excuses, all that's going to happen is there's going to be a little seed planted there. And they're going to go on with their lives. This is a good crowd tonight. But how many know we, we, should, we should see that many people we had Sunday night back every service? Should, we should all be here. We should be seeking God. And so tonight there may be some people working, of course. There may be some people legitimately sick. There may be some people with legitimate excuses, but a great majority of people tonight are just not here because they thought of an excuse. Well, I'm just, I'm tired, or, you know, there's too many hypocrites at church, or whatever. There's all kinds of excuses, but I want to show you in the scriptures a few things, and I saw something this week that just, just really, really, really touched me, and bothered me of course at the same time and moved me and all those things that I'll get to in a second but I want to as you've got Acts 26 open I'll read it in a second I want to read one more thing this is this is kind of funny but it's serious at the same time uh, about excuses so a church got to a place where they said hey we, we're hearing so many excuses if, if you've been a pastor like I have for any amount of years and of course you've been a church a long time but if you've been a pastor for a long, a long time you've heard just about every excuse in the book and sometimes it's very hard not to laugh on the outside when somebody is giving you an excuse because on the inside you're laughing. You're thinking, and I'm talking about the ones that are laughable, okay? I'm not talking about somebody died or I'm talking about just the ones that you know are made up. And it's just, it's just funny and you're trying to just nod your head and say, oh, I'm sorry to hear that, you know. But inside, you know, you're chuckling. So this pastor said, we're going to make a no excuse Sunday. Dedicated to missing church attendees. So I said, we're going to set it up so that everybody that comes is going to be accommodated. So it says to make it possible for everyone. Because if you think about it, just in our church, for example, we have hundreds of people in our church, but we're not always here at the service at the same time. I don't know if we've ever in six years had everyone at the church at the same time. Amen. I'm just saying it's just a hard thing to get everyone here. So he says to make it possible for everyone to a church 
It's in church this Sunday. We're going to have a special no excuse Sunday. They're trying to cover everything. So he says, cots will be placed in the foyer for those who say Sunday is my only day to sleep in. There will be a special section with lounge chairs for those who feel that the pews are too hard. Eye drops will be available for those who are tired from watching TV late Saturday night. We will have steel helmets for those who say the roof would cave in if I ever came to church. Blankets will be furnished for those who think the church is too cold. Fans for those who say it's too hot. Scorecards will be available for those who wish to list the hypocrites present. Relatives and friends will be in attendance for those who can't go to church and cook dinner too. We will distribute stamp out stewardship buttons for those that feel the church is always asking for money. One section will be devoted to trees and grass for those who like to seek God in nature. Doctors and nurses will be in attendance for those who plan to be sick on Sunday. The sanctuary will be decorated, watch this, with Christmas poinsettias and Easter lilies for those who've never been to church without them. And finally, we will provide hearing aids for those who can't hear the preacher and cotton wool for those who think he's too loud. Hope to see you there. Amen. Now, there's a lot of truth to that. Amen. I could have made that a lot longer. But the example is and the idea is that we make a lot of excuses. So I want to go to Acts 26 real quick. Now, I did all that to lighten the load because what I'm going to tell you in a moment after we read this, like I said, touch me to my core. And I hope it does you too. But let's read Acts 26 real quick. How many know as we read this that Paul spent most of his saved life behind bars? Most of his life preaching the gospel, writing the New Testament, he did it in prison. Right there we can stop and say, Paul, you get the award. And we think, God, thank God Paul wrote the Bible even though he was in prison. Acts 26, verse 24. Paul is talking to Festus and he is sharing his faith with him and he's preaching the gospel to him and he's sharing Jesus with him. And in verse 24 it says, Now as he made his defense, he's on trial, Paul, Festus says with a loud voice, Paul, you are beside yourself with much learning. This much learning is driving you mad. But he said, I'm not mad, most noble Festus, but I speak words of truth and reason. Now, let me stop there for a second before I go on. How many have realized as you've tried to witness and you've began to understand, I need to reach others, that you feel that many times when you're trying to share your faith, that is how people feel about us. You're mad. You're crazy. You're religious. You are, this is just a phase. You're going through something. When you really, really, really get touched by God, I mean, you really get touched by the Lord. You are going to automatically have a burden to share your faith with other people. It's not something you're going to have to be pushed to do. It's going to come out of you because of the burden, the compassion that Jesus has that is inside of you. 
It's going to be automatic. doesn't mean it's going to be every day. But something inside of you is going to push you to want other people to have what you have. To know what you know and to go where you're going. We cannot be believers saved by Jesus and believe this Bible and not be pushed and compelled to tell other people Jesus is the answer for their life. And that's what we tried to do this last weekend. That's why we had the play. That's why we asked. That's why we prayed. So that somebody would come in and give their lives to Jesus and be rescued from the pits of hell. And be saved from eternal damnation. Be saved from fire forever where the fire doesn't go out and the worm doesn't die. So Paul is doing that and he has such a burden for the lost that he does not care what anybody thinks about him. Let me tell you something. You're not going to make it for God until you reach the point that you no longer care what anybody else thinks about you. You better get to that place. If you're still worried about offending somebody or bothering somebody or somebody being upset by your walk, you're not going to make it. You have to get to a place where the only person you're concerned with is what God thinks. And you say, amen. And he's doing this. He's preaching and he's, he's saying, no, I'm not mad. Verse 25, I'm, I'm speaking the words of truth and reason. Now, the hard part about this is sometimes we understand ourselves that we have the truth now. We were talking about this last week. We get to a place where we start looking back. If you're a new Christian, you look back at what you used to do, how you used to act, how you used to talk. And then you start getting around, you know, changing your lives. And then when you get around those people again, for whatever reason, maybe it's at a birthday party or you're just talking or someone's back in town. You say, golly, that's that's who I was. Many of us in this play were watching these screens and one of the hardest part about doing this play was that they had to relive their stupidity. And they'll all say amen, amen, because we look back now and we say, that was dumb. Why did I live like that? Because now we know the truth. And we say, I would never do that again. I don't need that anymore because I'm a new creation. I'm a saved person now. I'm a believer. Jesus has changed my life. I don't need those things anymore. And so Paul is passionate about this. Now look at 26. He says, For the king, before whom also I speak freely, knows these things. I am convinced that none of these things escape his attention, since this king was not done in a corner. Sorry, this thing. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you to believe. He's trying to tell this guy, look, I know you believe. And Agrippa says, you almost persuade me to become a Christian. Almost. Underline that if you've got your Bible or focus on that for a second. Do something there in your notes to understand that he's saying, Agrippa says, you almost persuade me. You've almost got me. Do you know there's going to be a lot of people almost make it to heaven? There's going to be a lot of people who almost didn't make it to hell. There's going to be a lot of people who almost did go to hell, but they made it. And you get what I'm saying. I don't know exactly what the reason was King Agrippa didn't believe, but I could say probably that there was some excuses in there. There was probably some things in there in his life that were just simply excuses. Paul says in 29, I would to God that not only you, watch this, but also all who hear me today 
might become both almost and altogether such as I am. Watch this. Except for these chains. Except for these chains. So Paul is witnessing. Follow me on this. Paul is witnessing passionately to this king. He's not talking just to some person on the road. He is in front of the king. He is in front of lawyers. He is in a court of law. And he knows that everything he's saying is not freeing him, but condemning him more. How many, want to know, how many would like to live a life tonight that would condemn you as a believer? Let me make sure you heard that right. I've got my hands up. Sounds weird. That if somebody would accuse you of being a Christian, they would find enough evidence to find you guilty. Let me say that again. If somebody accused you of being a believer in Jesus Christ, that they would find enough evidence to find you guilty. How many Christians today, not being mean, just being honest, would say, oh, I'm a Christian. But if we really took them into a court of law and broke down their life, they might not be held guilty. They might be left with lack of evidence. I don't want to be that person. I don't want to be that person who's not, who's not found guilty. This is one time where you want to be found guilty. And he's sitting here preaching. And he's sitting here sharing his faith. And he knows that every word he says is not loosening him or freeing him from bondage. It is placing him deeper and deeper and deeper into chains. And he's sitting there in chains. And he says, I wish everybody would be like me. Except that they would ha- not have these chains. And what am I saying about this? Why am I saying this? Because Paul is preaching the gospel regardless of his circumstances. And we as believers and human beings tonight, in the sometimes weakness of our Christianity and our walk with God, we make excuses for everything when Paul is sitting here living a life unto God in chains. It didn't stop him. Now, some of you might say, oh, you know, this isn't the kind of message I needed tonight. I needed to be lifted up a little bit. I needed to be encouraged a little bit. This is a good kind of message. This is the kind of message where, as I said Sunday, we continue to examine our lives and ask ourselves the question, am I really a Christian? Am I really a believer? It's, It's only two things. It's amen or woe is me. It's, it's only, there's only two reactions you can have. And, and that, that God is wanting us to really ask ourselves, are we? Because when I hear the story, and it goes on to say there a little longer, later on he says, this man's done nothing deserving of death or chains. Okay? Now go with me if you would to Luke chapter 14, and I want to tell you a quick story of something happened this week. Because when I hear something like this, it makes me want to crawl up into a corner and hide because of the easy life we have in the United States. I'm going to say a name, and I'm not going to say it exactly like it's supposed to be said, but I'm going to say it and see if anybody recognizes this name, Miriam Yeha Ibrahim. Anybody recognize it? couple? Miriam Yeha Ibrahim. Last week, five days ago, she was caught and arrested in Sudan. 
for being a Christian. Putting her faith in Jesus Christ in a nation where it is illegal to be a Christian. That's where it's going to get heavy. Remember, if you, if I gave you the jokes to lighten you up. 53 countries in the world, it's illegal to be a Christian. We're here on a Wednesday night. We're listening in a free place with no guards, no, no, no fear at the moment, although anything can happen, of any kind of somebody just walking in, shutting us down. We're here. We came freely. We're in a free country where it's illegal still at the moment, let me stress that, to be a Christian. Where it's legal still at this moment to express our faith in Jesus, although we're seeing in the news every day more and more that everything wrong is being elevated as good, and everything ro- sorry everything yeah and everything right is being pushed down as wrong. Just like Isaiah said, good will be called bad, and bad will be called good. Amen. How many are following me? Tim Tebow, as a football player, for example, gets crucified for saying Jesus is his Lord and praying before games. Yet another player gets drafted, and the whole draft is about the fact that he's homosexual. He's not even a humongously great football player, but they got to wait till the last round and make sure all the attention's on him because he's openly gay. That's the world we live in right now. Where we're just making sure that everything right is wrong and everything wrong is right. And you can agree with that if you want or not, but I, we believe what the Bible says tonight. Amen? And we're here to make, make a statement that we still believe what the Bible says. We're not here to be politically correct. And when I finish this story, I hope you get to a little bit more of being less politically correct and more godly correct. Because we're living in a free country. And, but I ask you tonight, what if we just watch this judgment play? And as human beings, this is how we are. We're out of sight, out of mind. When we're in the moment, when we're at a judgment play, the anointing's here, the lights are down, the screen's on. Man, we're all ears. We're listening. We're making choices. We're making decisions. Some people, while that play was going on, changed their entire life. Some of those people went to the mission field in their mind. They sold everything they had. They stopped cussing. They stopped drinking. They changed their lifestyle. As the play was going on, they were just totally changed. They even came up, maybe, and made a decision. But by the time they got home, they had got their stuff back, left the mission field, cussed again, drank again, gone back to the same life, and nothing has changed. We have to ask ourselves, if Christianity was illegal here, How many of us would be here tonight? And I'm asking myself that too. It's a real question. Because this woman got arrested. Miriam. Yeha. Ibrahim. For being a Christian. In a Muslim country. And and that's not it. When she got arrested. They took her into the court. Just like Paul. In Acts 26. And they said, are you a Christian? Yes, I am a Christian. We're going to give you three days. Now, watch this. We're going to give you three days to deny your faith. To say you are not a Christian. That was nice of them. Amen? And if you do, we will drop the charges. But if you don't, we will proceed. The three days came. She stood before the court. 
She said, I am a Christian. I will not deny my faith. Then Miriam, Yeha, Ibrahim was sentenced immediately to 100 lashings. 100 lashings on her back. This is 2014. And not only was she sentenced to 100 lashings as a woman, she was sentenced to those 100 lashings with an eight-month-old baby in her stomach. And on top of that, they sentenced her to death by hanging after the 100 lashings. But they're going to allow her to have her baby first. Then they will kill her. Yet today, after finding out the sentence, after hearing that she was going to get 100 lashes on her back, and that she was going to give birth to her child, and then be hung, she still says, I am a believer in Jesus Christ, and I will not deny my faith. Man, I only I I'm I, I'm not I could just ignore this, but I can't because it pierces me to my core. And I say, God, would I do that? Every single one of us needs to sober up in our mind and ask ourselves that question: Would I not only not only confess Christ, but moms, come on. Especially you moms. Mother's Day just happened. Put yourself there. Can you imagine that? Not only that, there's something else. She has a 20-month-old baby that's alive. 20-month-old son who's an American because her husband's American. And her husband, I just heard this on the news yesterday, on J Secular Live, ACLJ, it's the American... Commission for Law and Justice, Christian Law and Justice. He goes and he fights for Christians' rights. He's trying to get her freed. We need to be praying for her. Obviously, if it's God's will, she becomes a martyr. God will use it to get people saved. But we need to pray for her. Because she went in. And I want, you, I want this picture to stay in your mind tonight. He went in to visit his wife in that prison. Eight months pregnant with the 20-month-old in prison with her. He's in prison too. The baby's in the cell. And she's shackled to the wall. Eight months pregnant. I want you to think about that every time the devil tries to put some ridiculous excuse in your spirit for not serving God. And she's there because she chooses to be. Because she understands what we need to understand. That this life is temporary. That this world we live in is only for a short time. And that eternity is forever. And she could deny Jesus and walk out of that prison free. And and then be denied before her, her father in heaven. Because she denied him. But she understands this life is nothing. To live is Christ to die is gain. 
And the church of America especially needs to ask themselves, am I really a Christian? Can you say amen? amen? I said it was going to get heavy. And I'm not condemning us. I'm just getting us to think like we did on that. Let's not let this judgment play go by. And Oh, we did a good play. Oh, that was good. Yeah, we did something for God. Church, we've got to wake up and understand that this is that all around the world. People every day are dying for their faith. Yet we say, oh, I can't go to church tonight. And I'm not talking to you because you're here, but you might make one Sunday. I can't come because I'm tired. I'm tired. I stayed up till three watching a movie. I can't get up and go to church. I'm tired. I didn't get any amens on that one. They'll go to Luke 14. I'm not going to keep you long. I want, this, I want you to think about this. How many, how many understand what I'm saying tonight? That I can't let something like this just go by and not talk about it. This is the kind of stuff we've got to stop. How many people just go, oh, poor her. Wow. Sad. This needs to be in our minds. She is our sister. We don't know her, but we will know her someday. She is our sister. I wish I could meet her. I wish I could hug her and thank her and tell her how amazing she is. I hope somebody is telling her that. I hope, some, I hope somehow, some way, through our prayers, we can pray that the Spirit of God would visit her every moment and she would feel comforted in that place of despair. I don't know about you, but I, I can't just out of sight, out of mind. That at this very moment that we're having church and we're free and we're sitting on nice soft chairs in a nice air-conditioned church. She's sitting in a cell, chained to a wall, pregnant eight months, knowing she's going to get 100 lashes and then be hung and never see her children again. That's real faith. Look what Luke 14 says. Jesus, now listen, don't. Don't go to one extreme on this. Don't think that I'm just sitting here being mean or legalistic. I'm trying to get us to understand that there is a seriousness to our walk that we lack. We don't take these things serious enough. In Luke 14, say amen if you're there. Verse 16, Jesus says, A certain man gave a great supper and invited many. And sent his supper, sorry, his servant at supper, time to say to those who were invited, Come, for all things are now ready. Verse 18, but they with one accord began to make what? Excuses. The first said, I've bought a piece of ground and I must go and see it. I asked that you'd have me excused. Another said, I've bought five yoke of oxen. And I'm going to test them. I ask you to have me excused. Now I'm going to stop there real quick before I move on because I don't want to forget this. It's not that we can't have land. It's not that we can't have a job. It's not that we can't have a car. It's not that we can't have any of these things. It doesn't mean we live in the mountains, grow a beard out, let our hair grow out, don't ever shower. It, it's not, we live life. It's when we put anything more important than God. And one of the biggest areas that God has established in life is for us to assemble together. 
And it's so important and, and many people don't get it. And many people that might have came to this play and got saved will not make it because they don't understand the importance of being in church and making themselves accountable to not only God, but to God's people. Because we're so busy. I understand a second and a third job. I understand all the excuses, really, we can make. Because really, when you stop and really break it down, they're just excuses. Honestly, they really are. Because I'm so serious about the things of God, in my own mind at least, that if I was struggling so much to make ends meet in my life, I would downsize. Before I would stop coming to church. I would get some things out of my life. Cable would stop. A cell phone would stop. I'm just giving you some examples. Hobbies would stop. We have to be so serious that those things are not taken care of. And God is neglected. We have a church world today that wants to go to heaven. And have all the benefits of it. But they want to do things their way. They want to work two or three jobs to have a nice house and a nice car and money. Yet their kids are going to go to hell because they don't take care of God's priorities first. They don't understand that God comes first. And you need to understand that if you're going to make it. You get to a place where things are not working out and you begin to say, hey, i got to cut down on something, but I'm not cutting down on God. Why is it that God is always the first one to go when He's the one we need the most? I'm going to figure a way out. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm, and we've all been there. We've all been in this place. All of us have been in a place we've had a little more. All of us have been in a place we've had a little less. But God is saying, look, I don't care what you're doing or how you do it, but keep me first. How many understand that? So it's not wrong to have a house. not wrong to buy a house. not wrong to have land. It's not wrong to have things, but you keep your priorities in line. Don't make excuses because they're not going to work. Go on, we'll finish. 21, still another said, I've married a wife and therefore I cannot come. So that servant came and reported these things to his master, the master of the house being angry. Said to his servant, go out quickly into the streets and lanes of the city and bring in here the poor and the maimed and the lame and the blind. And the servant said, master, it is done as you commanded and there's still room. Then the master said to the servant, go out into the highways and the hedges and compel them to come in, that my house may be filled. For I say to you that, watch this, none of those men who were invited shall taste my supper. Church, I'm not, I'm not here to, again, to condemn any of us. I'm here to just ask ourselves, where is my walk with Jesus? How serious do I take this? Don't, don't let this be a message where you go, wow, that really made me think. And then tomorrow, you don't ever think about it again. Because tomorrow, you're going to have some excuses to make. Sunday, you're going to have some excuses to make. We all get tired. We all get burnt out. We all go through things. We all have things we have to do. But just keep these things in perspective. Just remember that, that Jesus said, if you don't lose your life, you cannot gain it. He who loses life will gain it. He who gains his life will lose it. That means I have not given lordship to Jesus. 
As the musicians come, I just want you to, once again tonight, I told you I wouldn't preach long. I want you to go back, hopefully, and read this parable again. I want you to do something else. If you'll write down in your notes, I want you to read the book of Exodus, chapter 3. And I want you to look at Moses' life. How many know Moses was greatly used? Mightily, powerfully used. But you read Exodus 3, and Moses makes excuse after excuse after excuse that he cannot do what God has called him to do. Watch this, don't lose me. You've seen them before. They haven't changed since before service. Watch this. When you stand before God, the greatest regret you have, I've said this before and I believe it, will not be what you did not do. Your greatest regret will not be what you did not do. It will be what you could have done. What you could have done. Because think about it. That's what excuses do. Excuses stop what could be done. Are you getting that? They hinder what could be done. So here's an example. There's a Friday night. We call a prayer meeting. Everybody says, well, I got something to do. And so we make a choice at that moment. I'm just throwing out an example. And, and, and at that prayer meeting, God had an established purpose. Out of that prayer meeting, of corporate, corporate prayer, we don't know exactly what God had that was going to happen. But let's just say, for example, five people were going to get saved. Three people were going to come back. Jobs were going to be restored. Someone was going to get healed. Someone else was going to learn how to pray. All these different things God had orchestrated from the purpose of a prayer meeting. And those, those things did not happen at a prayer meeting because not everybody who was supposed to be there came. Are you following me? That's not condemnation. That's just the truth. So an outreach happens. Hey, we're going to have outreach. We're going to go out. We're going to pass out flyers. We're going we're gonna, to we're gonna take, take the gospel to the streets. We're going to make sure people come to the judgment. Just giving examples. And that day comes. If you have to work, you have to work. But something, you know, I, I'm just tired. Or, you know, I've, I've got a shower to go to. I've got a birthday party or whatever. Whatever it is. You make that choice and you say, I'm going to go to this thing. And I understand we have plans. But it's like, where, where's God? Where's his priority? Where's he at? Seems like he's, how many know we're always going to have a birthday to go to? We're always going to have uh, some shower to go to. We're always going to have something to do. God is wanting us to say, if you would just grasp that if I would be first, God says I have a principle. And I'm going to be honest with you, most Christians don't get this principle. They hear it, but they don't get it. God says, if you will truly, with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength, love me and seek me, I will diligently reward you, the Bible says. And he says, if you'll seek me first, if you'll learn and get that revelation of how to put me first in everything and do your best, there'll be times you're going to fail. There'll be times you're just going to flat out lose to the excuse. Excuse is going to beat you. You're going to lose sometimes. But don't lose them all. Don't, don't lose too many. Don't be a loser in the excuse battle. Amen? How many get what I'm saying? 
You're going to fail, you're going to fail, you're going to fail. But try and try and try again to be a winner in the excuse battle. And as you do that, God says, if you'll put me first, I've got this little principle that I have in my word that a lot of people can quote, but not everybody really believes it or understands it. And it says, if you seek me and my kingdom and my righteousness, then all of the things you need will be added unto you. And all of us have heard that verse, but I've actually seen it happen. I've actually seen it be real in my life. I've seen that. And God wants all of us to get that. He wants us to not be that religious person that just kind of kind of gets it, but says, man, thank God, most likely, most of us are not going to have to make the choice that woman made. That's just the honest truth. Unless things turn really quick right now. We know during the tribulation, everybody's going to have to make that choice. But right now, most of us won't have to make that drastic, crazy, my life or my faith choice. But how many know that we should get better at the smaller ones? And work on focusing on God's kingdom saying, God, I want to keep you first. And I know that if I seek you first, you'll give me everything I need. Amen? Everything I need. I'm going to tell you one last thing before we pray. And I say this from my heart because I've been realizing it more and more as I feel like we're getting closer and closer to the return of Jesus. All of us want things. Right? Right? And when we get something we want, we want something else. That's just how we are. I want this. And then once it's in your hand, you go, that was it? Nice things, car, house, career, money, family, kids, all the things, just on and on and on. Just whatever desires you can have. You're going to find out in life that once you have those things, they don't mean anything. They really don't. What really means something, I was telling this to some of my friends this week. The most amazing thing, I've played basketball in front of thousands of people on TV, which was my dream. I've been paid to play basketball, which was my dream. I've been in that arena. You might have something else that was your dream. I've been in my dream. There would only be one higher thing, of course, that would have been to play like in the NBA and make humongous money. But I've, been there where I've seen that cool thing that I wanted and doing what I did Sunday night seeing people come up and get saved is way better than any game I ever played in any accolade I ever got is way better and you might say well I need to figure that out for myself go ahead but I like to be the person that listens to somebody else and learns from somebody else, doesn't have to wait and go through all that because once you finally get it, you're going to say, wow, that was it? That was it? Mm. Why? Because God is the only one. The will of God is the only thing that will really fill you and make you happy and sleep good at night and have a purpose. Amen?